Now let's uh, turn for our second reading and uh, for our text as well to the uh, same passage of Scripture, the Gospel according to Matthew, and reading this time in chapter 17 and from the beginning of the chapter. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And uh, we just read in verse 1 that after six days, six days after what we'll see later, but after six days Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. Luke uh, tells us in addition that when he took them up on a high mountain it was to pray. So he was transfigured before them. Now in coming to the Lord's Supper we always <coughs> gather our thoughts around the Lord himself, around his person and what he has done for us, his work. And as we consider the Lord's work during the course of his ministry, there are five events that stand out for particular reasons. Two of these are at the beginning of his ministry and two are at the end. The two at the beginning are his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. These are significant events at the beginning. The two at the close of his ministry are, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross at Calvary. These four stand out. But so does this one in the middle of his ministry. And if I'm not mistaken, this one tends to be more overlooked. 
And I think the reason why it is overlooked is because it isn't really fully appreciated or fully understood what really is the Transfiguration. We all know, probably, most of us anyway, that our Lord was transfigured or transformed on top of a mountain. And for a brief moment in time, he was accompanied by two glorious saints from the Old Testament. But why? What was the meaning of that? What was the purpose of it? And maybe it's because we understand that too little that we tend to overlook it. But I'd like, with the Lord's help, uh, to consider it with you during the course of these services. Now, it's customary to speak of uh, preparatory services as an ascension themselves, that we are ascending what they used to call the Mount of Ordinance. And of course, on the Lord's Day, as we come to the Lord's Table, we spend some time on the Mount of Ordinance, and then we have to come down. And it is always difficult, or usually difficult, to come down from that Mount of Ordinance. But what I would like uh, to do with the Lord's help, and as he enables us, is essentially to follow that pattern in connection with the Transfiguration. And tonight, and tomorrow, and on Saturday, God willing, we will ascend the Mount of Transfiguration along with Christ, Peter, James and John. And then, God willing, on the Sabbath morning we will spend some time on top of the Mount with them. And then on the Sabbath evening and on the Monday, God willing, we will descend the Mount. Um, as we have to do, spiritually speaking too, but we will descend the Mount of Transfiguration and see what lessons are to be learned at the foot of the mountain too. Because what we learn at the foot of the mountain is intimately bound up with what we learn at the top of the mountain. And of course we pray, and I hope we all pray, that the Lord would accompany us on our ascent up the mountain, on top of the mountain, and our descent too. And if he does accompany us, we will understand and appreciate the Transfiguration a lot more than perhaps we have been accustomed to. And perhaps like Peter, we will be more inclined to think of this mountain as the Holy Mount, which is how Peter referred to it in his second letter as an old man. He speaks about how he was with him on the Holy Mount. So then, let's take some time over these days to look at the Transfiguration. Now, I think it's just, in a way, sensible to begin by noting who it is that ascends the mount. You'll notice that Christ very deliberately leaves nine of the disciples at the foot of the mountain, and he takes three with him. That is similar to the procedure that he followed. In fact, it's identical to the procedure that he followed. Later on in Gethsemane, in the hour of his agony just before the cross, 
when again he left uh, some disciples and took the same three in further with him so that he could pray more intimately with them. Now here he does that, leaves the nine and he takes Peter, James and John. This isn't actually the first time that he separated those three either. Uh, some of you may remember that when he raised uh, Jairus's daughter from the dead, he took Peter, James and John into the chamber on that occasion too. The rest of the disciples were left outside. Now, I suppose we'll say more about this later, but I think it's worth saying right now at the outset that that has something to do with who these men are. Something to do with the fact that they are in some kind of way prominent among the apostles themselves. Now there is such a thing as prominence among the apostles. Um, you'd be inclined maybe to think that there wasn't such a thing, but by saying that there was, maybe that you'd be moving towards a kind of papal or Roman Catholic understanding of things. But that's not necessary at all. It's not necessary to move in that direction just by simply affirming that there are distinctive roles uh, within the apostolate. There clearly were. For example, when Paul was converted and when he went up to Jerusalem and when he met the apostles for the first time, he immediately perceived that Peter, James and John were pillars in the church and that they had the reputation of being pillars in the church. Now, admittedly, that James is not the same James that we have here because at that point, this James had been killed with the sword. Uh, but in a way it doesn't matter. Uh, that James, in a sense, took the place of this one. So he, along with John and with Peter, were pillars amongst the apostles in the early church. And that's how the Lord designed it to be. He was going to give special responsibility to these three, and because of that they had special privileges, and they had special responsibilities. Much would be required of them, therefore much would be given. Much would be given, and much would be required. And you'll notice that these three men are actually told not to tell anyone what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration until the resurrection had taken place. Now, in one way, that's quite a remarkable thing. The separation that the Lord made between the three and the nine was even to this extent that they were not allowed to communicate what had been seen by them until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. Now, that would actually become the occasion of envy and jealousy on the part of the nine. Maybe we could understand that. I didn't say it was the cause of it. The cause of that envy and jealousy was in their own hearts. But it became the occasion of it. And I think we can say with equal certainty that it also became the occasion of pride in their own hearts. We can understand all that. I mean, which one of us would be free from at least the stirrings of that? 
If you were one of the nine, you could understand an envy or a jealousy, even some kind of resentment that you had been overlooked or passed over for something. Or had you been one of the three, you would say, well, we, we have been raised up higher here. We have heard things that others haven't heard and seen things from the Lord that others haven't seen. And perhaps you may wonder why Christ did so. Uh, but whether we get an answer to that or not, uh, it's important to remember that God's gifts and callings are his own prerogative. He can make these divisions as he pleases. He bestows privileges and responsibilities and honours and dignities as he pleases, and it's never ours to question why. We, we all need to learn humility in the Christian life and accept whatever station God gives us. And humility is, you could almost say, the, certainly one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian. And um, it's one of the great lessons that the Lord teaches his own disciples, all of them together, whether the nine or the three, the need to humble themselves and become as little children, not just to enter the kingdom, but to grow in the kingdom. So it is the three that he takes with him. I want you also to notice when they ascend the mountain. Now, of course, this can have two answers. One answer involves the six-day period, which we're introduced to in verse 1. It's after six days that Jesus takes them up onto a mountain. I'll come to that in a second. But... When I'm, ask, when I'm asking at the moment when he takes them up, what I mean by that is the particular time of day when it happens. It's towards evening when they climb the mountain before it becomes dark. Luke tells us that they descend from the mountain top on the following morning. That reminds us very simply that the transfiguration occurs at night time. Now there's a very um, important corollary to that. There's an important fact bound up with that, which I'll come to in a second. But I think for now it's worth, even from the visual side, worth noting that the transfiguration was even to the side more spectacular than we, we would normally think it to be if you consider that our Lord's face shone and his clothes shone against the background of a dark night and a dark sky. Peter incidentally makes that comparison in the second letter that he writes. He compares the glory of Christ's face shining against a night sky to the light of scripture which shines in a dark place and shines more and more until the perfect day. And uh, there's a way in which that kind of comparison becomes even more powerful when you think that Paul speaks of the scriptures themselves as containing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's as though as you look into the scriptures, he says, you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
you see his character becoming more and more plain in this dark world. There is a light. This light, he says, leads you on until the day breaks. That, he says, is like what we saw when we were with him in the Holy Mount. We saw the face of Jesus Christ. We saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining in that dark night. So, like I say, even in physical terms or in terms of physical sight, the transfiguration is made more glorious by the fact that it occurs through the night. But the most important question is why did they ascend the mountain? Who, Peter, James and John, when in the night, or at least to be there on the mountain top in the night, but why did they ascend? Well, I drew attention to that right at the beginning, and it's Luke that tells us that when they ascended the mountain, they ascended there to pray, to pray. That's why they ascended. Not to be transfigured, but to pray. As we'll see in a moment, the transfiguration is God's answer to the prayer. But the prayer is not for transfiguration. The prayer is really for something else. Now, prayer is vital in everyone's life. It's vital, obviously, in the Apostle's life, and we'll go on to see that something was not quite right in their prayer life at this point, just as things may not quite be right in our own prayer lives at various points. Certainly there is nothing wrong with the Lord's prayer life. Never was, never could be. But the Lord needed prayer too. And he had his own set times for prayer. Sometimes we read that he prayed early in the morning. Mark tells us on one occasion that he got up and went out to pray before it was light. On another occasion we're told by Luke that our Lord went out to pray all night. That occasion was the night before his choice of twelve men to be apostles. And our Lord's prayer was for his Father's will to be played in that matter. Now, we all need uh, to know God's will. And there are times in life when um, we perhaps may need that in a particularly important way. There are times in life when particular seasons of prayer are called for. And uh, even a communion season like this is a providential event from God that calls on us all to pray especially. Uh, whatever our ordinary prayer life, a communion should call on us to lengthen our prayers and to deepen our prayers in preparation. And quite clearly the Lord by ascending a mountain in the evening and descending in the morning, was leading the disciples to a night of prayer along with himself. And that means that there was something heavy on the Lord's own mind, and heavy on the Lord's own spirit, something that he was wanting an answer from God in connection with. And that answer, of course, is 
the transfiguration itself. And we're told in the Bible that it was while Christ was in prayer that the transfiguration actually occurred. Now, we'll look uh, another time, uh, just over the next few days, at what actually was involved in the act of transfiguration itself, when the Lord appeared in glory, and Moses and Elijah appeared in glory too. But for now, it's just enough for us to ask, why does it happen? For whose benefit is it? Is it for Christ's own benefit? Or is it for the Apostles' benefit? Is it something that the Lord himself needs to experience? Or something that Peter, James and John need to experience? Or if they all need to experience it, surely not in the same way. Well, friends, I think it's best if we do begin to look at it as simply an answer to prayer. God the Father answering the prayer chiefly of Christ, his own Son. Now in what way is it an answer? I suppose that's just another way of saying what was it that Christ prayed for. Well, I would suggest to you very strongly, friends, that Christ's prayer was a twofold prayer. First, it was a prayer for his own disciples. Now, the Lord always intercedes for his people. He did on earth, he still does in heaven. Nothing has stopped that ministry. In fact, we're told that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Even as the events of the betrayal were coming near, uh, Jesus said to the apostles that Satan has desired you. All of you. In the Greek language that means all of you. Satan has desired all of you that he may sift you as sweet. But Simon, I have prayed for you, singular, you especially, that your faith fail not. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ did not pray for the rest of them. But it does mean that he prayed especially for one of them. And that's easy enough to understand. There are many times in life when we may bring a, a group of people before the Lord, but for a particular reason, there may be one or two people within that group who we feel particularly need to be brought before God. And Christ felt that way regarding Peter. Now why doesn't concern us at the moment? The only point that concerns us for now is that he prays for his disciples. And he prayed then for Peter particularly. And here he's doing the same. And his request to his heavenly father is undoubtedly that his heavenly father would humble the disciples. And that he would give them a teachable spirit. Something that they had, but were losing, as we'll see in a second. To make them humble and to make them teachable. That is the reason um, when God later speaks from the glory cloud on top of the mountain that he says, This is my beloved son, hear 
him. Listen to him. Listen to him. So Christ's prayer is that God would humble them and give them a teachable spirit. I've no doubt too that partly the request is for himself as well. It is at this point after Peter and the disciples confess his divinity that the Lord sets his face, we're told that later in the chapter, he sets his face for Jerusalem for the last time. And he does that as someone who is uh, conscious that there is a power that would keep him back. Even in himself. He has no desire at one level to face what must be faced. If it were possible, that cup would pass from him. But he must consecrate himself. He must, as Luke says in this chapter, set his face towards Jerusalem. I suppose you know yourself when there's something in front of you that you don't want to do, but you know you have to do it. You have to set yourself to do it. And the Lord had to set himself to go to Jerusalem and the transfiguration is part of that. It is a request to God for the strength needed to make this journey which is going to end up in such a a profoundly hellish experience as was going to be had on Calvary. A prayer that God would, well, perhaps even put it this way, that God would, perhaps in a special way, grant him a taste of the joy that was set before him, which we know from Scripture was the reason why he endured the cross and despised the shame. There were occasions on which God did grant him special measures of that joy that was to be set before him, but nothing, I would suggest, comparable to this. Nothing comparable to this, which, as we'll see God willing on the Sabbath, is quite literally heaven on earth. But that is not simply given by God. It is given in response to our request for strength and encouragement for a difficulty ahead. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced the fact that God doesn't just deal with his son like that. He deals with all his sons like that. When, when there is a difficulty to be faced, when, when you are willing to consecrate yourself and to go into the teeth of a gale or to take on a difficulty or to do something for God's sake or for Christ's sake, he does exactly the same thing for yourself. He will find a way of dropping into your soul a foretaste of heaven or something of the joy of your salvation in an unusual degree which just encourages you to take the step that you have already agreed to take. That, by the way, is the order. It's not joy first and then you acquiesce. It's the acquiescence first by faith and then the joy, the token, the kindness and the mercy. So there's a prayer for his disciples and there's a prayer for himself. 
Now, how is it that we can be sure of these things? Well, it's not as difficult as you might think. Perhaps the most obvious key to understanding the transfiguration is simply noting that it doesn't occur in a vacuum. It doesn't take place without a context. In fact, it takes place in a context of special crisis and difficulty. Notice again when it happened. This time I don't mean during the night and a night of prayer. What I mean is in verse 1 that it takes place six days after something. After six days Jesus takes Peter, James and John onto a high mountain by themselves. It's a time marker. Now, you don't often find time markers like this in the New Testament. They're quite rare. Luke tells us that it was around eight days afterwards. Matthew and Mark tells us that it was six days afterwards. Why people persist in finding contradictions in these statements is just beyond me. Um, Somebody with rudimentary powers of thought and understanding could tell you that the expressions six days later and around eight days later are perfectly consistent with each other. In fact, if you were to count days inclusively rather than exclusively, in other words, if you count the day from which you're beginning and the day on which it takes place, eight and six may well be the same. But in any case, around eight and six days later are not inconsistent. That's just childish trifling that people persist with. But the fact of the matter is that both or all the Gospel writers, at least the ones who comment on the Transfiguration, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they all draw attention to the fact that there's a time interval here. And it's the Holy Spirit's way of saying, well, go back then. Find out what it is that happened six days before that makes this night of prayer so necessary. What is it six days before that lies so heavily on the Lord's own spirit for six days that it constrains him to take three of them up, the three most prominent ones, up onto the mountain for an act of prayer? And which so constrains the Father to answer in this wonderful way. What is it that happened? Well, friends, what happened can be summed up like this, I suppose, that the Lord began to teach what he hadn't taught them before. And Matthew tells us that in the previous chapter here, chapter 16 and verse 21. You'll notice in verse 20, by the way, that just after Peter has called him the Christ, the Son of the living God, After that great confession, in verse 20, he commands his disciples to tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. But then we read this, that from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Now, that was very, very different from the content of his teaching 
prior to this point. Up till now, the content of his message was to do with how the kingdom of God was to be entered. It was to be entered through himself and a special emphasis on his identity as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And coming to him in faith, the life that was to be lived was the kind of life that would make you the light of the world and the salt of the earth. The great Christian manifesto that we find primarily in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through to 7. And of course, that great period of instruction and how wonderful a period of instruction it was to those who heard it, it was crowned here at Caesarea Philippi by Peter's confession. Because when Christ effectively asks them in connection with that first part of his teaching and instruction, who do men say that I am? What is the response to it? Well, the common responses were that he was a wonderful man, that he was a great prophet. Perhaps even he was John the Baptist, recently killed back from the dead. Perhaps he was Jeremiah, whom the Jews believed would actually return before the Messiah would come. Or perhaps he was Elijah, who was definitely promised in the Old Testament to return before the Messiah would come. And Christ said, but who do you say that I am? A critical question at a critical time. I suppose it's always a critical question. Whenever the Lord asks it of ourselves, it's a critical question. Who do we say that he is? Peter, of course, stands forward and says, you are the Christ. We believe that. What's more, we know who the Christ is. You are the Son of the living God, no less than that. And no more than that could you be. We have come to believe that. After that confession, the teaching changes. It moves away from who he is and how you enter our relationship with him and it moves on to what he must actually do. In other words, away from his person and on to his work. What is that? Well, he's got to suffer and die. He's got to go to Jerusalem. That's the journey we're now just about to start. There I will suffer many things at the hands of the church authorities and leaders at the hands of elders, chief priests and scribes, I will actually be killed and I will be raised again on the third day. Now there's a sense in which none of this is new. After his resurrection, the Lord tells us that this is what was taught in the Old Testament by Moses, just clock that just now, and the prophets. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And to prove that after his resurrection, walking with the two to Emmaus, he begins to open the scriptures to them from the Old Testament to show them that it was there, transparent, plain as they, for those who had the eyes of the Spirit to see it, 
that Messiah, when he comes, must suffer, must die, and only then enter into his glory. So in that respect, it's nothing new. But the fact of the matter is that the church had lost that teaching. They had explained it away, or even spiritualized it. When the Messiah comes, there will be something like a suffering, something like a death, but not real, not an actual suffering, certainly not an actual death. When the Messiah comes, he will live and rule and reign over Israel first and over the world, never to die, but living forever. Here Christ says, no, I will really suffer and I will really die. In fact, Mark tells us in his account of the Transfiguration that Jesus began to teach these things openly. Now, I think the Greek word translated openly there is conveying to us without parable, without type, without obscurity, without symbol, plain English language. Just as plain as the Sermon on the Mount. And the apostles knew it. They knew he was speaking without parable or type or shadow or symbol. And the response to it was amazing. All the time up till this point, their response to his teaching was acceptance and humility. They were recognising him as the beloved Son of God and they heard him gladly. All of a sudden, change. Verse 22. Peter takes him aside. This is still chapter 16, verse 22. After speaking of his death and suffering, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, we need to watch that because it doesn't mean, oh, I don't want that to happen. That's not what this expression means. It means this is not uh, your portion. This shall not happen to you. Now, we really need to understand this. First of all, Peter took him aside. Now, when we think of a thing like that, we, we might just say, well, um, calling him to the side for a minute, you know, I, I need to have a word. But again, the, the Greek language is more physical than that, it's more dynamic than that. The Greek expression means to catch hold of someone by the arm, and it carries the idea of forcing it. This is someone who's listening to someone and not pleased and gets a hold of his hand, deliberately takes him away from the rest because he has something to say. I wonder if he had ever took hold of the Lord before. Very much doubted. Certainly not in this way. You know, it's quite a profound thing just to take hold of the Lord like that. Especially with that kind of force and intention. And if 
If you got the feeling watching this happening that there was something going on that wasn't all too good, it was quite obvious that that was the case once he begins to speak because Peter, we're told in verse 22, begins to rebuke him. And the Greek word is as strong as that. To censure. To admonish. To say to someone that they are doing something wrong. Not just a protest. It's a serious attempt to silence Christ and to correct him. Now, it's amazing that that should be so. I mean, when we look at it from our standpoint today, we would say, well, who does Peter think he is at this point? Who does he think he is? And if he's speaking for the rest, which I think... He may well be, as, as he often was, even when he made the confession that Christ was the Son of God just not too long before this. He was speaking for the rest. In all probability, he was doing the same thing here too. You say something to him. Oh, I'll say something to him, all right. And he took him to the side. Who do they all think they are? To actually dictate to the Lord what is right for him to do. To actually dictate to the Lord what the scripture says the Messiah should do. They know whether the Messiah should suffer or die or not. They know what Moses said in the law. They know what the prophets said. They are able to say this is not the destiny of the Messiah. And they're telling that to the Messiah himself. Why does that happen? Well, I think, friends, the answer to that is very simple and very sad. They do this because that ugly thing called pride had come into their hearts. I suppose it's always there. It's dealt almost a death blow when you become a Christian, really. Because you can't become a Christian except by really humbling yourself. But it's not actually a death blow. And we discover that. Or even if it is a death blow, it takes a long time to die. And in fact, it can easily grow up again. Where did this pride come from, especially in Peter? Well, it's not hard to see. The Lord had just pronounced a wonderful thing in connection with Peter. He had given him a new name. Simon was now Peter. And what's more, there was a marvellous dignity along with it. Jesus says to him in verse 17, again in the same chapter 16, You are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. That's your name. You're blessed because this understanding of who I am hasn't been given you by flesh and blood. You didn't work it out yourself. Neither did flesh and blood tell it to you. But my Father in heaven gave you this understanding. He has blessed my teaching to you. And I say to you, Simon, that you are no Peter. He had said earlier that he would get this name. Now he's got it. You are a stone. Mm -hmm. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and you will be a foundation stone in it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that whatever you bind on earth shall already be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall already be loosed in heaven. A foundation stone in Christ's building. I suppose it's difficult for something like that to be said about you publicly by the Lord without pride setting in, at least if you're not vigilant. Could pride have set in that quickly? Could it have set in that quickly? (laughs) Pride just takes seconds to set in. Seconds. It was pride that made the devil fall. It was pride that made Eve, almost in the twinkling of an eye, turn from being an obedient servant of God to being someone who reached out to be self-sufficient on tongues. Tell me how long pride takes to work in your own heart. All it takes is a a little praise, a little honour, a crumb of something like that your way, and, and you know yourself, how you can run with it. How you can run with it, it doesn't take much. And it doesn't take much then for you to start dictating, even to the Lord, how things should be done. Now you say, oh well, I wouldn't do that. Are you sure about that? Let me just take a few examples. In chapter 18 here, the Lord tells us how to deal with conflict when it arises within the church itself. In Matthew 18 and verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and himself alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he does not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. I suppose if that was really followed, the state of the church in this country anyway would be very, very different from what it is now. And many relationships between Christians may be very, very different from what they are now. But how often has it occurred to people that there's a better way than this to solve it? Oh, an ecclesiastic says, oh, leave it to me. Leave it to this wee committee that I've got together here. We'll deal with it. Deal with it? Make a hash of it, you mean? Why? Well, because we were wiser than God. That's why. The Lord said, this is how you do it. And we say, oh, no. Take something like the administration of the Lord's Supper itself. I remember once being in a church and I was surprised to find in the congregation, this is, this is not in our own denomination, but I was surprised to find that everybody was sitting at the table together, those who were going to have the sacrament and those who weren't. And I asked the minister why there was no discrimination between those who were going to partake of the sacrament and those who weren't. And he said, well, he said, 
We thought it was a good thing for unbelievers to handle the sacraments and to pass them on so that it might make them think. You say to yourself, uh, whose wisdom is that? Whose wisdom is that? It's not God's. It's human. There's a certain human wisdom in it. Of course there is. Is it God's wisdom? No. That's the equivalent of taking Christ aside and saying, that's not actually the way it is. And so you can go on. You can do it when it comes to to people who who begin uh, relationships with a view to getting married with people who are not Christians on the basis that maybe they go to church or that you might win them around. That's your way. It's your way of thinking. It's got a certain wisdom to it. It's not what God actually said. It's not what God said. When people choose a job to do or where they're going to live, very often the decisions are based on considerations of money and comfort. As though Lot's choice of Sodom was a good example to follow rather than a bad example to avoid. Instead of looking at where you would spiritually prosper or be a spiritual blessing, no, these two considerations don't come into it. Or even the choice of church to attend. Instead of looking at what the church teaches and preaches, what the worship of the church is, or what the discipline of the church is, that who's got the liveliest youth program, or who's got most facilities for children, or even who gives you the warmest greeting at the door. Really? Is that the basis on which to take decisions like that? It's nice when your dentist smiles. It's nice when your bin man smiles. But is that it? Do people too choose churches on the basis of things like that? When you do, it's the equivalent of taking Christ aside and saying, this is not how it is. We know better. And we think we do. It's so easy to turn on Peter and say, what on earth is he doing? Do you not think that anybody could sometimes look at ourselves and say, what on earth are you doing by choosing that? When the Lord clearly tells you that that's not what you should do. Maybe in that way it's not so strange to find Peter dictating to Christ what he thinks the Old Testament is teaching. Now it's no surprise that Christ rebukes Peter's rebuke. He does it loudly and forcefully. And it's worth noting that. He rebukes Peter's rebuke. He does it loudly and forcefully. Now there's three parts to it. I'm not going to go into them all tonight. I'm just going to touch the first one. The first thing he does to Peter, you could say, is that he, he calls him out. And he calls him out by calling him Satan. Verse 23, get behind me, Satan. Satan is a term that means adversary, enemy. It's also a proper name for the enemy of our souls. 
Now, sometimes you'll come across an explanation that says that when Christ says, get behind me, Satan, that he is actually talking to Satan himself. Now, that's not true. In fact, the scripture shuts that possibility out. It tells us that he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It tells us who he's talking to. He didn't say it to Satan. He said it to Peter. But he called Peter an enemy. Satan. Why? Well, because he's doing Satan's work for him. I mean, what does Satan need to do if Peter's doing this? If, if Satan's purpose is to deflect us from the right course, and it always is, if that is Satan's purpose, to get us to step aside from the law of God, from doing what is right and good and lovely and holy and obedient, if that's his purpose, well, that's exactly what Peter is doing for Christ here. In fact, little does Peter know that were he to get his will, there would be no salvation for himself. There's some important lessons here. Even the strongest Christian can be a stumbling block to other people. Peter here, well, what an influence he's got on the rest. It's no accident he's often their spokesman. And, and if he talks like this, how quickly that would make a mess everywhere. We have to be aware of following prominent Christians if we can't square up what they're saying and doing with what the Bible says. Beware of it. Let me repeat it. Beware of following prominent Christians when what they're saying and doing doesn't square up with the Word of God. Their prominence is no reason whatsoever for you to follow them in doing what is against the Word of God. Only follow the good examples of good men, not their bad ones. So even the strongest can be a stumbling block. You'll notice too that even those closest to us can be a stumbling block. Who would have expected Peter to be a stumbling stone to Christ? Who would have expected that? A stumbling block, by the way, is just a stone on which you trip. It's something in your way, it causes you to fall and you stop walking on the path on which you should be. Here is a man who, one minute, is a stone in the foundation of the church. A rock-like stone. A minute later, he's causing people to stumble. Even those closest to us, not just the strongest, but those closest to us, even your spouse can be a stumbling block. Um, Job's wife was like that for Job. Famously when, well, we need to remember that it's, it's easily forgotten that it wasn't just Job who lost everything, so did she, in fairness. Except the health which Job lost, he, he lost his personal health. But aside from that, she suffered the loss of seven sons and three daughters, all their wealth, 
all their business, everything, overnight. And she turns to Job and she says, renounce God and die. It's translated, curse God and die. It means essentially to renounce God and die. What she means by that is it's very clear that God is against you. He's against you in a way that he has never been against anybody. There has never been a series of disasters like this in anybody's life in such a short space of time. Why are you still retaining your integrity? There is obviously something far, far wrong in your life. It's a speech out of anger, frustration and grief. Just things that we all feel to some degree from time to time. It's amazing in all his disaster that Job can turn around and say to her, you're speaking like one of the foolish women speaks. That tells us, for a start, that Job believed his wife was a good woman. It tells us that he believes she's still a good woman, but that she has given way to Satan herself. Uh, remember, it was Satan's intention to get Job to sin. And it seems that one of the last throws of the dice, as it were, just pardon the expression, is to get his own wife to come in and say the same thing. You can use your spouse. I can be a stumbling block to my wife, my wife to me, you to your wife, or you to your husband. Your children too. I've often said in various congregations that the desire to please and indulge your children can be very, very dangerous, allowing them to do things that we wouldn't do ourselves, and then that leads to ourselves doing it eventually. Flip the whole thing round. You can be a stumbling block to somebody else. Paul tells us to make sure that we're not a reason for other people stumbling. For example, in 1 Corinthians and chapter 8, he tells us that um, in connection with our eating and drinking, beware lest your liberty becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. If anyone sees you eating in an idol's temple, their conscience will be emboldened to eat those things. Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died because of you using your knowledge? When you sin in this way, you wound a weak conscience and you sin against Christ. So if eating food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat in case I make my brother stumble. There's a lot in that and I can't touch it, obviously, really. But the only lesson I want you to understand from it right now is just that you just be careful that you don't make someone else even go against their own conscience. Teach their conscience first. Um, let me just leave that there. Um, as well as doing that, calling Peter out, he calls Peter to his right place. Let me close with this. As well as saying, get behind me, he says to him, Satan, he says, he says, get behind me. What does he mean by that? Well, go back where you should be. 
Who is behind Christ? A disciple. A disciple is a follower. What Peter's done here essentially, if you're going to picture it, is he's come round and he's taken hold of Christ and taken him to the side. And Christ is essentially saying, you get back. Get back to your place. You are a servant and I am the master. I will teach what Moses and the prophets have said and you are not wiser than me. And uh, this lack of teachableness and stubbornness is something that means that they're out of their place. He actually says to him, get behind me, Satan. He says, you're a stumbling block to me because you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Uh, you're looking at human understandings of the Bible. You're looking at what important people have said instead of listening to me in the Word. My time has gone. Since, since I'm continuing the theme anyway, it doesn't really matter in a sense where we stop it. So let's just leave it there and pick it up, God willing, uh, tomorrow. And let's stand and pray. O Lord, O God, it is fitting for us, before a communion to acknowledge the pride in our own heart, how easily and quickly it can arise, and how it can even take a hold, how pride can come in, even in the most spiritual of duties, and in the most spiritual contexts. And we pray on this Thursday prior to a communion to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, to again become little children, to ask that you would accept us at your table, and that we would have teachable spirits, and that we would purge out of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit what belongs to pride and to vanity and accept us since we confess these things and pray these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Let's um, bring your service to a close by singing in Psalm 51. And at verse 9, Psalm 51 at verse 9. <clears throat> All my iniquities blot out, thy face hide from my sin. Create a clean heart, Lord, renew a right spirit, me within. Cast me not from thy sight, nor take thy Holy Spirit away. Restore me thy salvation's joy with thy <coughs> free spirit me stay. Uh, we'll sing uh, verses uh, 9 to 12. Let's stand to sing to God's praise.
Amen.